I'm Danielle. I'm Fran. And this is Snow in the Mountains. Fran, I sent you a text this morning with these three images, and I'm just kind of dying to know uh, what your preferences are. So open your texts and <laughs> look at the first one. It's not pails of paint. It's cups of coffee. Um, yeah. How do you take your coffee? Row and column, please. I would take my coffee D2. D2. Okay. I'm currently sipping on something that is kind of more in line with like, I would say C6. Really? Yeah. I like a darker coffee. Yeah. Just this splash of cream. I really prefer like an espresso. So, I mean, I can... I can take the jolt, you know? Well, of course, you're Italian. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next picture. What uh -huh. about the toast? How do you take your toast? The English woman in you is dying to give me this answer right now. All right, my toast will have to be, I guess, the top row, the one on the right. Okay, I think I would go with second row furthest on the left. Okay, We're and close. then. Perhaps the most important question is, how do you like your steak? I want all of them, except for the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love a good steak. I'm a medium rare girl myself. If like, uh, what's your favorite you? cut? No. I think I'm like medium. Medium would be good. Medium? Medium to medium well. Sorry, they should right. have one in between there. <laughs> they should, yeah, totally. Um, medium, medium, medium. Yeah. Um, are you a ribeye girl, a filet lady? Oh, ribeye, definitely. Ribeye for me too. Yeah. I mean, I would take a ribeye over a filet any day. I feel like, you know, that good marbling, that's where all the flavors What, what is with these restaurants with, that serve these uh, tomahawks? Have you seen the tomahawk steaks? Well, tomahawk is like my very favorite. I actually get them here locally at uh, Waka Meadows Farm on oh, yeah? 129 across from Wayne Hatchery. If you're going like kind of towards Quillian's Corner, they're yeah. like the kids school and stuff like that so um yeah their tomahawks when they have them are incredible is he still open because i thought they were doing some transition there with the outside or something waka meadows farm is still open yeah, that's on waka the meadows. um that's on the west side of the street yeah it's on the right as you're coming south yeah, yeah. Coming south. yeah but okay. great steaks um we actually we picked up ribeyes from them and made them not this weekend, but last weekend for Mother's Day. But yeah, love a good steak. Actually, um, Jay and I got up at uh, 4.45 yesterday morning and threw a 15-pound brisket on the smoker. And it was amazing. To die for. Mm -hmm. uh, my neighbor, Josh, is an avid barbecue man. And I was calling him coach all day yesterday because I wanted to make it the way he makes it because his are always so good. And Hey, I was pretty impressed. I mean, it was just like melt in your mouth delicious. So you know what I'm doing when we're done recording. I'm going to go. Yeah, you're going to go eat. I'm going to go hack <laughs> off a chunk of that brisket and get down on it. Well, that sounds good. Oh, I'm going to go to Mountain Meadows and get some steak. Now about this. <laughs> well, we have had an interesting start to our morning. Um, yes, we have. We're on Zoom and... Towards the end of the episode, we'll tell you about some of the phone calls that we just made um, together and some of the information that we derived. But you guys, this case, again, here we are, my jaw on the floor. I just, 
the more and more reading I've done on this, Fran, the more shocked I've become, you know, unfortunately, every day people are murdered. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. every day, you know, there there is an opportunity for failure on the behalf of multiple jurisdictions, whether it be um, people reporting, you know, properly about um, witness statements or the judicial system, or, you know, as we've discussed, um, there's quite a few law enforcement agencies that have fumbled. So, you know, there's, um, I think for us, this case, it's the very end. It's the information we got today that just shocked me the most, but the case itself is, is wild. So I'm going to start off by reading to you um, an excerpt from an article uh, published in the Pickens County Progress. This week we're in Pickens County, Georgia, and uh, county seat for Pickens County is Jasper. Um, in 1981, Pickens County was still a pretty small area with the census reporting at only 13,000 people. Um, today in Pickens, I think they're closer to about 30,000 people. So, I mean, it's it's grown quite a bit, but we're... Um, Again, here up in the North Georgia mountains, you know, the Blue Ridge Mountains. um, And this is an area that's really known for uh, marble. That was their biggest industry. And um, actually several, several structures and uh, statues in town uh, built out of marble still to this day. So this artifact. In fact, the the Tate mine, which mines the marble. I recently learned this. That's why I'm going to interject it was flooded oh. and you can no longer get the, the marble, the Georgia marble from the Tate mine. No way. Because I had a piece of the marble at the store and uh, a gentleman came store? in and told me at the, at the store, gentleman came in and told me the whole story that the Tate mine had been flooded where they excavate the marble and that they can't get it out anymore. It's totally flooded. What a crazy so, coincidence. Or, so, so that's very, very interesting. Yeah. Well, and you know, I love that you know, we come together every week to share information with people who crave it. Um, but we're also learning new things every single week too. You know, it's that's right. very interesting. I'm kind of like one of those people that I feel like if I die and I don't know literally everything, I'm going to be very upset. I just crave information. I'm just a sponge. I just want to <laughs> take it all in. Absolutely. Well, take this in. And then I can't wait to hear you tell us this story from your perspective. So again, this is Pickens County Progress. This is published on March 26, 1981. And it states, on Tuesday, March 23rd, Sheriff Billy T. Wofford and officers of the Pickens County Sheriff's Office and GBI agents Francis Wiley and Stanley Thompson arrested Larry Romine, 29-year-old white male, for the shotgun murder of his parents, Roy Lee and Avalee Romine. The arrest followed as an intensive investigation by the Sheriff's Department, GBI agents, and personnel of the state crime lab. Romine is now being held in an undisclosed location. The sheriff said no motive had been established. The double murder occurred between 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. last Thursday, March 19th, in the Ludville community when Mr. and Mrs. Roy Lee Romine died of gunshot wounds, according to Sheriff Billy Wofford. The bodies were found Friday morning, about 9.30, by the family pastor, Reverend Tony McClure. It was customary for Mrs. Romine to meet two other ladies at Watson's store in Ludville to ride to work in Fairmount. On Friday morning, when she failed to be at the store, the ladies rode to her home, blew the car horn, and then knocked on the door. 
When no one answered the call and feeling something was wrong, Reverend, M Reverend McClure was asked to check and found the victims. Apparently, when Mrs. Romine returned from work about four o'clock on Thursday, the murderer was in the house. The time of her death was set at four o'clock, and the murderer evidently waited there until Mr. Romine returned from work and shot him, since the time of his death was set at 6 p.m., according to the death certificate. Correct. And this doesn't even really scratch the surface of the details in this case. Now, this case moved very fast, and as uh, any investigator knows, it's the, you know, the first 48 hours, as they have on TV, sure. for the most critical. And uh, this was literally probably my... Well, it was my first double homicide, my only double homicide that I worked, uh, and uh, we um, we had to hang on because every every minute counted. When uh, Agent Thompson and I arrived at the scene, we were called by uh, Sheriff Wofford of the Pickens County Sheriff's Office. We traveled to the scene, which is very remote, very much a farmland out in the country. And I'll set the scene for you. Um, this was on a rural road. Mm -hmm. uh, the road was not paved. It was dirt gravel type of road. The house set up on the right. It was a traditional ranch brick set up on a hill. So there was an incline from the driveway up to the house of about, I'll say 300 yards. Uh, as you go up the driveway, the house course faced the road and pulled in to a double carport. You would walk in, there we have a kitchen, off the kitchen is a bedroom, front of course is a living room, and then there's another uh, uh, bedroom, bathroom, and another bedroom. So it was basically three bedrooms, and I think there were two baths in the house, the kitchen, okay. off the carport. So we arrive at the scene after we've learned this information about a Reverend McClure had, had found them. And um, the, the Romines, uh, as we learned in the case, the Romines were hardworking people, very much set in the community, church-going people, would help anyone. Uh, they had one son whose name was Larry. And Larry lived next door on property owned by them in a uh, fairly new double-wide uh, mobile home. Uh, Larry was married, and I think he had two children at the time, a boy and a girl. Um, so anyway, uh, that's kind of the scene there. So we arrived, and we called the crime lab to come and, from Atlanta. And uh, as I walked in, Mr. Romine was on the kitchen floor. Uh, a bag of paper bag of groceries had uh, he must have had in his hand was also on the floor. Yeah, he had been shot in the back. Ah. Um, the house uh, was in somewhat disarray to the tune that the perpetrator wanted you to believe, as I know now, mm -hmm. uh, that it was a robbery. He had pulled right. doors out. He'd moved furniture away from the door. And so we... False ransacking there. Yes, absolutely. So we went from the kitchen. There is a door that went into what was the master bedroom. Mm -hmm. um, and so we went around the living room into the master bedroom because that door in the kitchen was closed. And Avalie was um, on the floor there uh, in the 
bedroom and she had been shot in the chest in the front. So I'll tell you what, it takes a hardcore person to shoot your mother in the chest. Yeah. Um, with a 16 gauge shotgun, not a 12 I gauge. I can't even, I don't know. I mean, I, I already know that there's some external factors at play here. Oh, yeah. External called LSD. LSD and other cocktails was in this factor. Yeah. Yeah, he was um, he was high on LSD and other factors. Anyway, so so he, he never came to the house. Yeah. So the state patrol was at the end of the driveway, only letting certain people come up, you know, protecting the scene just to figure out what was going on. When Larry showed up down at the end of the driveway, you know, if it was me and it was my parents. I would have probably gone to jail for assaulting the police officer. To Kicking try to and get screaming, trying to get there. Absolutely. Right. He did not expose, he did not display any behavior like that. That was, that was the number one clue for me to know that he had something to do with it. Well, and I will say, you know, that kind of stuff gets tricky, but I've always trusted your instinct, but I'm thinking back to, um, you know, different podcasts or documentaries where they are evaluating somebody's behavior after a crime happens, whether it's in the 911 call recording and, you know, is this person too calm? Is this person too frantic? Or um, a case that I recently listened to on True Crime Garage where they discussed, you know, the husband uh, wrote a check for his employee that had followed him home and they both had alibis and it really couldn't have been either one of them, but he still kind of went about his daily routine, you know, with his wife lying dead here on the floor. And, you know, so at what point is it a coping mechanism? At what point is it shock? You know, you just never, is there a, a right way to react? I mean, I think I know how I would react if I was faced with such a heinous trauma, but, you know, you just don't really know how adrenaline is going to kick in. So, you know, was, this was this man's physical demeanor, the things he was saying, um, you know, was he disheveled? Did he look like he'd been, you know, up all night? What did he look like to you? No, he, he didn't. He just looked, uh, you know, I walked down there and saw him introduced myself to him and um he just he didn't display any behavior of overly concerned or, or lots of questions or you know how can I help you or just to me what a normal son would have engaged in regarding the death of his parents he didn't, he didn't have any questions any that. nothing mm -mm. I mean I've nothing. got a few Jeez. So um, the crime lab came, you know, they dusted for fingerprints. We took lots of pictures, lots of pictures. And of course, the, the coroner came and pronounced them dead. And um, so there was no weapon left at the scene. Right. Um, I don't know why we didn't call the dogs out for whatever reason, but we didn't. Um, we did later learn from, from Larry himself about what actually happened and what he did. So as that progressed, um, they they did have a funeral for them, and uh, within you know within a matter of a day or so. And was Larry at the funeral? Mm -hmm. Yes. In fact, I think it was uh, right after the funeral. We 
the sheriff and I and Agent Thompson took him to Atlanta because he was our prime suspect. Sure. We knew he was having an affair with a, a uh, young lady, uh, not, of course, not his wife, uh, who lived in a in another area of the county. And uh, we heard that she had a shotgun just from interviewing other people. Ah, so this so, is Ginger. Yeah, this is Ginger. Okay. And so uh, we uh, found Ginger and uh, we found the gun uh, at Ginger's house. And when we found the gun, it had what we call blowback on it. And blowback is when, you know, residue and articles come back onto the weapon from mm -hmm. being in close proximity to the person that's being shot. So, so we're that was all blood yeah, splatter. That all, that's right. Other other bits. Yeah. Okay. So we uh we put we bagged all that and took it to the lab and and uh so we knew we had the the, the proper weapon. And so um she indicated that she was having an affair with him and we interviewed her for close to eight hours at the sheriff's wow. office at the at the old courthouse in town. And um yeah, she she said that um, she had seen him that night, that she didn't know that he had actually taken her shotgun, and the nickname for her shotgun was Bear, believe it or not. She called her shotgun Bear, hmm. and um, she she um, said that he had, had taken a lot of drugs. They both did drugs. Uh, later that night, he came and picked her up and took her to a motel in I think it was over in Calhoun. They went, spent the night. And then the next day, it was just like a normal day. But that just, that just really bothered me that after shooting his parents, he would just go pick up his girlfriend and go to a motel and shack up for the night. Who well, does that? It's, it's <laughs> thick and it's cold. I mean, oh, yeah. like you said, to shoot his mother point blank in the chest, looking mm -hmm. in her face. And then the sheer cowardice to shoot his father in the back as he carried in the groceries. I mean, this mm -hmm. is, and this is a 29 year old man. I mean, this is just, yeah, it's not. It's he was, not um, he was wanting money and they were not wanting to give him any more money. They'd already given him a place to live. Uh, he was not very well, uh, responsible. He wasn't a responsible person, even though he had two children, he, uh, I guess he really just wanted to live off of them. He always needed money. And he was right. always asking for money. And in some of the research that we've done, you know, they do go pretty, pretty well into detail about how severely um, his parents disapproved with his lifestyle. Um, you know, they certainly knew that he was having an affair. They definitely knew that he was um, abusing drugs. And yes. I mean, as a as a mom myself, I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to be forking money over to my child, you know, an adult or otherwise to feed their addiction when they're so irresponsible, leaving this family, you know, behind and not yeah. prioritizing them. And I mean, it just doesn't sound like he was really ever on the right path. No, the uh the case further evolved that uh, once we decided we would, uh, we didn't arrest him. We asked him to take a polygraph test. So after the funeral, we picked him up and we took him down to Atlanta where the polygraph examination was done. 
and uh, Agent Thompson, myself, and Sheriff Wolford uh, were there, and the polygraph examiner came out and said, Sheriff, he wants to talk to you. Oh. So Billy, his name was Billy Wolford, Billy mm -hmm. went back there and um, spoke to him, and he confessed that he did it and that he was on drugs and that um, – you know, that uh, first thing he said to Billy, which Billy re reiterated to us, was when he, before he even started to confess, he says, what's going to happen to me? Right. What's going to happen to me is what he said. And then the sheriff oh. said, well, well, we'll talk about that. But, you know, you need to go ahead and do the right thing here. Let's let's get it out. And so he, he confessed to everything. He confessed that he 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 uh, was on drugs went and got Ginger's shotgun, came to the house. Oh, don't waited. forget those two hits of LSD. Oh, yeah. Came to the house after taking his drugs and and waited for his mother to come home. Now, she was dropped off. Um, I mean, she was dropped off at her car, but she, you got to understand, his mother and father were daily workers, hardworking people, worked at a carpet mill, carpet plant. For years. Yeah, that's a big industry day, in Northwest Georgia. Yeah. The parents work at a mill every day. Okay. So um, they had a dedicated routine. Mm -hmm. uh, so she comes home. She goes into the into the, the bedroom where she goes to put her purse down. She had been paid. We know that she had been paid because she had a check that was missing. Mm -hmm. The other thing that he did that... Um, I don't know if it's any of the research you found, but he, Larry, had taken, we found out that through other sources that he had burned some stuff in a burn pile or a burn bin behind, uh, I think it was his grandfather's house. Yep. What turned out to be his mother's purse. Yep. And yep. It says um, um, law enforcement officers thereafter searched the trash barrel, which mm -hmm. is what he was used to burn. Um, they found a metal tool identical to one used by Abilene in her work, a metal right. frame, rings, and a zipper that looked like the metal portions of her coin purse and pocketbook. Um, so yeah, it says that her paycheck had been, uh, for $500 that was issued to her March 19th. Um, and then they also found, um, a packet of papers from his car that included her savings passbook. So what is that? Like a check ledger? We don't yeah. call it a savings passbook anymore. Most right. people don't even have paper checks anymore and various title and insurance papers bearing her name, um, or Roy's name. So That's plenty great. of evidence. Yeah. And I mean, didn't even clean the gun. So we're talking about somebody who really does not have their life together and, you know, not a professional criminal by any stretch. No. So uh, anyway, so he did confess. We took a written confession from him and um, took him back to the jail in Pickens County where he stayed. Uh, he was tried and he uh, was convicted and um, he got the death penalty. Then part of that, uh, part of the case was overturned for what reason I don't recall at the moment. And we had to retry him. And again, he was found guilty and he received the death penalty again the second time. So um, the, I guess the, 
I guess the most upsetting thing is what I've just found out today. I always assumed that he was still on death row up until today. Well, yeah. And in doing our homework, um, you know, I found that as of 2001, he was still on death row. Right. And I know you'd had some suspicions that potentially maybe his sentence could have been commuted to maybe life imprisonment. I thought that's what had happened because when I did some research yesterday, I uh, could not find him on death row. Uh, I looked and there were 18 white males, 20 black males, two Hispanic males, and one black female. He was not on the death row list yesterday. And you know, so I he, thought, well, he was, maybe his sentence was commuted to life. Right. And I, and I was okay with that. There's but, tons of information on the internet about, um, you know, his appeals process back in the eighties when he was trying to get off of death row um, after his initial conviction. And we do know that his grandfather, um, Ralph. a very religious man. Yes. Ralph. Um, he intervened big time and, you know, really was very much against his grandson. Um, I think it was the electric chair is what he was yeah. originally sentenced to. And his grandfather protested this, you know, with his whole soul. Um, yeah. So I don't know if he had anything to do with, you know, how this moves forward. But the last thing we found on the internet was that as of 2001, Larry was still on death row here in the state of Georgia. Then Fran and I hopped on Zoom this morning and started making a few phone calls just to kind of, you know, be able to wrap a neat and tidy bow around this case. We didn't really like what we heard. No, <laughs> pretty upsetting. Yeah, we found out that, um, well, first of all, I know he was born, uh, he was 29 years old in 1981. So uh, we found out his birth, birth month is September. Don't have the date. Call the Department of Corrections. And unless I have his uh, inmate number or his date of birth, uh, which is now private, of course, um, I cannot get any information about when he was, uh, what his inmate status is. So uh, I called the clerk's office in Pickens County, Georgia, in Jasper, and was informed it was uh, it was court this morning there, and that there was not really anybody could, that could help me, that I could come over and look in the basement at five boxes of evidence that I had put there. Thank you very much. That would be wild. <laughs> but, Maybe we should. I, I, don't, I don't want to drive an hour and a half to Jasper <laughs> to look at five boxes to get the date of birth. Thank you very much. So uh, anyway, um, anyway, they uh, said that I would have to call back and. And that was a lot of work for them really to try to do that on a, on a day of court. So the problem that we have is uh, she stated on the phone that he had been paroled. And I said, how do you know that? And she, I said, is it in the, your system anywhere? Or she said, no, it's just common knowledge. Well, yeah. So common knowledge in the county is that a guy on death row is now paroled. Well, and th that was an interesting conversation, Fran, first and foremost, because there are a few things that she didn't seem to to know, like a birth date being public record once somebody has been convicted of a crime, right? Um, but if she didn't know any details about him or his inmate status, and she would have to pull all of the files in order to give you his date of birth or his inmate number or any of that information. 
how did she know that he was paroled? So we're getting this information like literally right before we hit record and our jaws are on the floor. We're totally shocked. And I don't, I mean, I, I guess that it's a reasonable explanation because we can't find anything about him, like a date of execution, um, whether he was pardoned, whether his um, sentence was commuted, whether he was paroled, none of that is available online. So, I mean, I suppose her guess is as good as any, but I really don't want to believe that he was paroled. I mean, he murdered his sounds, parents in cold blood. Sounds like he was, though, uh, and I'd like to know more details about it. So, uh, I've made a couple calls to uh, an agent that now works at Pickens County that, that worked with me, and I'm going to ask him if he can uh, either find out his inmate number so I can call back to the Department of Corrections and find out exactly what happened. And, you know, the sad part about this is, and I, I don't know if this, this is something that ever could be rectified, but as an agent or an investigator, when you spend countless hours, I think I went... 48 hours without sleep on this case. I mean, oh, I I'm stayed sure. over there and I just stayed and worked and worked and worked it. And a lot of agents and officers do this on murder cases because you can't stop. It's like it controls you. You oh, don't control it. Absolutely. I can only imagine. So they, there, I think there has to be some respect for an officer that devotes this time into this, but then they're, then it's like, okay, you're done. Thank you very much. See you around the campus, kid. But no one had ever let me know that this was even coming up for an issue. Right. You know, it's almost like they should be required to let the let the case agent know that this is becoming this is an issue that this that this guy is coming up for a parole consideration. Well, or that, we do have whatever, programs you know? in place like that for victims. There are victims advocacy programs who have made sure that if the offender that has committed a crime against you is to be released, that you are contacted by that jurisdiction to let you know that this person who has brutalized you in some way, shape, or form is going to be back on the streets soon um, as a means by which for a victim to seek assistance or mental health counseling for right. PTSD. Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons why somebody might need to know that somebody is getting out of prison. And, you know, as much as you are, you know, the protector for so many, when you are in this role as special agent, um, you yourself could be perceived as a victim uh, because you don't know what sort of vendetta somebody could have against you. You are in theory, the reason why this person was found out and imprisoned and, and all of that. Now, you know, Larry is what in his seventies at this point in time, I do mm -hmm. I yeah. hope it's hard to believe or hard to imagine that he would come after anybody, but not just Larry, any, any criminal who's capable of, cold-blooded murder of their own parents you know is he still capable of doing that you know do criminals ever really rehabilitate and why is it that um only the tr like the perceived victim in the case is notified you know i mean you're totally right i never thought about the advocacy for law enforcement agents well i i to me i represented the victims they can't speak for themselves these yeah. two people who worked their whole life to give him a life they're gone and i was the only person 
myself and the other agents and the sheriff are the only person that could represent them in their death. Right. And so who else could speak for them? You know, who else could represent their view? And and, and maybe the, they would have wanted him to be paroled. I don't know. Maybe they would have forgiven him for killing them. I don't know. They do seem uh, they're like the kind they of people really that, wonderful. They're the people. kind of people that would have done that. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I guess I would have just have to know more information about it. You know, all of a sudden people get, supposedly he was a, a part-time pastor, but there we go again with part-time pastors and pastors. And I can't tell you how many I've locked up. Yeah, we've heard about them before. Um, yeah, there's even a whole article written um, that says, let's see, what was the title of this article? High Court Affirms Singer's Death Penalty, because yeah. he was described as a formal gospel singer and occasional preacher. Yeah. Um, and I do know that, um, you know, the uh, the notes on his trial include many, many biblical passages and so they were certainly trying to weigh very heavily on this man's perceived faith um, mm -hmm. during his trial in order to try to, you know, alleviate some of this, this penalty for him. Yeah. That doesn't excuse his actions though. Um, it all comes with a consequence. And he, absolutely. He definitely did that. Well, we, yeah, we have his mugshot too. And I got to tell you, I mean, yeah, it's black and white and yeah, it's an old newspaper and yeah, it's very grainy. Um, but it's just, it's a, it's a scary image. It's not, it's not a good mugshot. And um, it's just, it's sort of haunting. We're going to have to post this on social, I think, because you gotta, you gotta see this guy. Um, I did learn, I wanted to interject this. I did learn yeah. that um, his son, who was quite young at the time that this happened, um, I learned when I was working that his son had become a narcotics agent. Uh, in that wow. district, um, worked for the sheriff or the drug tax force over there. So that uh, that to me was uh, I was I was really glad and I'm proud to hear that his son had, yeah. you know, gone that direction to try to in some way, you know, I don't know, react to what his father had done because you know what kind of burden did that carry to that young man and in his yes. whole life to be the son of you know, Larry Romine, a man that murdered his parents. It's unfathomable, you know, really. Pretty, that's the ultimate, rough. um, yeah. not wanting yeah, to pretty rough to like carry that. Yeah. But I, I would be very, uh, I would be quite proud that he had done that and, and, and carried that forward to try to make an, an amends for his father, so to speak. Absolutely. If he could ever do such a thing. Right. But, um, what a strong person to be able to do that. I always wanted to try to meet him one day. Yeah. And, and tell him that, that, that I was proud that he had gone and done that. Well, and I, I know your heart, Fran, and you hold the families of the victims as close in your heart as you do all of the victims that you came across. And I know that, you know, the memories of these people and these lives that have been turned upside down throughout these cases that you have worked, um, you know, they, they never really have faded away from, for you. And that's why we're here. That's right. Well, Fran, this was uh this was eye opening and i'm excited that we do have a few leads that we can try to wrap up this case moving forward with a bit more information on if and when and how larry was paroled so stay tuned if we get more details on that we will absolutely share them with you um 
Thanks again for a great case this week, Fran. Thank you, Danielle. We'll be back again next week with another story about somebody else doing something bad. Bye for now. And please behave. Listen in next week. Snow in the Mountains is recorded in North Georgia by Fran Bishop and co-host and producer Danielle Eigelhart. Find us on social media at snowinthemountains.pod or email us at snowinthemountainspodcast at gmail.com. Your listens, follows, likes, and shares help our show greatly and are much appreciated. New episodes are released every Wednesday. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen. 